Good morning, church. It's good to see everybody this morning. Glad you're here. Uh, got a good crowd here. Got a good group in, in the uh, Fellowship Center. I've got our live stream folks. Welcome to everyone. And uh, I was telling Larry, uh, when you preach hey, from here, you never know where it goes, brother. Uh, <laughs> Or what's said about it, and that's okay by me uh, uh, when I'm preaching. So, But uh, thank you all for being here this morning. Uh, I want to remind you, we have a uh, special Sunday of giving coming up June the 12th. And this, you know, we work on a 50-week budget, so we have two Sundays. One we give for missions for One Kingdom Ministry. The other, now we're giving for discipleship. And so that contribution will go toward... Things that we do that aren't planned in the budget that we make sure we want to do for discipleship. Watch this short video. I think it'll tell you a little bit more about it. Hello, White Cherry Road Church family. I'm Miranda Lee. And I'm Colin Dunn. We're so excited to let you know about the new men and women's retreat ministry starting at our church. This spring, we had our first ever WFR Live Men's Retreat, and it was a huge success. I'm happy to announce that this fall, we will have another WFR Live Men's Retreat and our first ever WFR Women's Retreat. Our first women's retreat will be held September the 15th through the 17th right here at Camp Chioka. The cost will be $150. We want you all to be there. Sign-ups will start August the 7th. That gives you ladies plenty of time to make plans to be there. The men's retreat will be September the 22nd through the 24th. The sign-ups will be August the 14th, and the cost will also be $150. Church family, these retreats are life-changing events that can strengthen our church from the inside out. Make a plan now to sign up when registration opens in August. We want you to be a part of it. Remember, June 12th is Discipleship Giving Sunday. Please be in prayer how you can support the WFR ministries, including Whitesbury Road Retreat Ministries. We, we will, will see, see you there. there. All right, just a reminder about that. Be sure and make plans to give for Discipleship Sunday. Uh, Larry, Russ, good to have you here. Good to be here. And uh, I'm not going to introduce him because he's been introduced like 12 <laughs> times here. So, uh, but, uh, but we always appreciate you coming Thank and you. Uh, bringing the word to us. I do want to have prayer over you as you right. preach, all right? Please. Father in heaven, thank you for my dear brother, for his love for you, his love for the lost. Thank you, Father, for his speaking the name of Jesus consistently, constantly around the world. And for the encouragement he is to us, it's an honor to partner together as brothers. In Jesus' sweet name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Love you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. Amen? Is Easter a big deal? Many of you were here in this room on Easter. And the cool thing about Easter is that we're not guessing on when it was. We know exactly when it happened. And it's not like, a, you know, other, other religious days and holidays and Christmas and that sort of thing. And they're all fine, but we are so dead solid on that date. Well, what happened 50 days after that resurrection? You know what today is? Pentecost. The word Pentecost actually means 50. Today is the day that the church was born. Happy birthday, church. 
Today is the day that God poured out his spirit on all flesh. Today is the day that those disciples in Jerusalem were closed with power from on high. And it's very apropos that we understand that today because of our text, this ministry of this new covenant. Um, Why is it that scripture can be so confusing to people? Have you ever noticed that? So much to the point that I hear people say, you know, the God of the Old Testament is just not the same God as the God in the New Testament. You ever hear anybody say that? Or, you know, the Old Testament just really doesn't have anything to do with the New Testament. I just carry a New Testament. Well, none of, none of that is could be further from the truth. So, so why is Scripture so confusing to so many people? Well, there's a lot of different reasons. So humanly speaking, the Bible was written by approximately 40 different writers over 1,500 years in three continents in various situations and contexts, vastly different cultures amid radically different situations and times. Many of the books are written in literary genres that we as readers are just so completely unfamiliar with. And who are these writers? Well, Isaiah is a prophet, Ezra is a priest, Matthew is a tax collector, John is a fisherman, Paul was a tent maker, Moses and David were shepherds. Uh, Luke was a physician. All these guys had their own problems. But in being used by God, they now have their own testimonies as well. So Scripture, despite being penned by all of these different authors over 15 centuries, it doesn't contradict itself and there are no errors. This right here is the most wrung out document in human history. It has been poured over. It has been studied. And for 2000 years, it has been tried to be disproved and pulled apart, and it's bulletproof. They all proclaim the exact same message, the one true God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and the only one way of salvation, and that is Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other name given under heaven by which people are saved. So who wrote the Bible? Ultimately, the Bible was written by God himself. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says that it was literally breathed out by God. God used, God superintended these human authors of the Bible so that in using their own writing styles and personalities and experiences in human words, in human times, They still recorded exactly what God intended. The Bible was not dictated by God, but it was perfectly guided and entirely inspired by God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This might be the most amazing scripture graphic that you'll ever see in your life. And what this represents is the 63,779 cross-references. That is where one scripture references another part of the Bible found in scripture. It begins over here with Genesis, and all of these lines are chapters. And this is everything all the way to down to Revelation. And so this one long is Psalm 119. It's 176 verses. David's talking about reading chapters. This is what you need to do over the next month of June here is read all of these. And do you think the Old Testament has anything to do with the New Testament? 
Absolutely. But there's actually a much deeper reason why the Bible, why Scripture, why the Old Testament in particular is so confusing to so many people. And it's not a literary reason. It's not a historical reason. It's not a cultural reason. The reason why the Bible is so confusing to so many people, why, in fact, it is so completely inaccessible to the minds of so many people is because there's a veil over it. People are actually blinded from seeing the glory and the light and the goodness and the truth that is the word of God. They're blinded by the enemy. They're blinded by their own sin. They're blinded by spiritual oppression, often blinded by uh, their own choices, desires and mindsets. This veil, this blanket, a shield, a covering lies over the word of God. It lies over their hearts. It lies over their ears. They are ever seeing, but never perceiving. Jesus said that in Matthew 13, and he was quoting Isaiah chapter 6, who Isaiah was quoting Jesus. So here's Jesus quoting Isaiah, quoting himself. Luke 24 is one of my favorite passages, especially in in ministering to uh, people that come out of Islam, because it, it just speaks volumes about what the Old Testament does. And so here's these two guys. They've just seen Jesus crucified. They're walking the seven mile road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they're just walking along and they're shuffling their feet. And Jesus appears among them and go like, hey, what are you all talking about? And they don't recognize him. And so they tell him the whole story. It's like, man, are you, haven't you watched the news today? Are you the only guy in the whole thing that doesn't know what just happened in Jerusalem? And Jesus responds by saying, how slow of heart you are to believe everything that's been written about me. And so beginning with Moses, he explains to them every scripture, every shadow, every idiom in a seven mile stretch of road. I would have loved to have heard that sermon. My goodness. All of this is by him and for him. And it all testifies to him. And so he says everything that the law says, the law of Moses, all the prophets, all the Psalms in verse 44, this is all being fulfilled. We're going to Jerusalem. Hebrews 4.12 said the word of God is living and active. It's alive. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It splits us in half and it shoves us in a corner and it exposes everything in us. And it doesn't stop there. It says that it judges the thoughts and intentions of the human heart. We think we read the Bible. The Bible actually reads us. And it exposes truth in us. And so these scriptures aren't just ink on pages. They are truth and life, Jesus says, that heaven and earth will pass away. But these words aren't going away ever. This is the word of God. And so our text this morning, Second Corinthians chapter two, from verse 14, all the way through chapter three and into chapter four. Uh, I'm going to just. Stick my toe over the line a little bit and, and just touch on six uh, verses. I won't mind it. You'll you'll be good to go next week. But uh, it, it all is part of this context. And so I want to walk through this and what it means to say that there's a veil over Scripture um, and over our hearts, over our eyes, over our ears, and how it is only that through Jesus Christ is that veil taken away. 
And basically what my thesis is going to be in this is that no matter how hard we try to read our Bibles, no matter how hard we try to engage with Scripture, unless we turn face to face with Jesus, unless the Holy Spirit enables us to see him, unless we allow the Holy Spirit to show us the glory of Christ in all of Scripture, we will always be reading the Scriptures with a veil over it. And so we're just going to be blinded. Jesus said, ask, and it's going to be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and that door is going to be open. This is an active pursuit of the glory of Jesus Christ. So I invite you now to read with me 2 Corinthians 2, starting about 14, all the way to chapter 4 in verse 6. That's right, 28 verses, all in a row, without even stopping. We can do this, and it's going to take us about four and a half minutes, but there is so much power in reading a given text before you study it, and then going back and going, okay, now I see the whole picture. So this is a section, and this is why we're going into verse 6 of chapter 4, because this is one solid thought. Here we go. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we who are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death. To another, we are the aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Chapter 3, verse 1. We are, begin- are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts. Known and read by everyone, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved on letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steady at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of of the spirit be even more glorious if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness for what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory and what if if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed. 
removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, the veil covers their hearts. But whenever one, anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Chapter four, verse one. Therefore, since through God's mercy, we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, little g, has blinded the minds of of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. Christ, who is the image of God, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ, the word of God. All right. Let's get busy. What's the first thing we do every time we open scripture? Context, context, context. All right, here we go. Exegetical questions. Who, what, when, where, why? Why is that important? Because if we don't do that work, we can make these scriptures mean anything we want. Okay? We are going to correctly handle the word of God every time. So 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. They're just Corinthian letters, right? Well, it's not quite that simple. Let me quickly explain. So there are four letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Everything that I'm about to say, we know from the book of Acts and from first and second Corinthians. That's the only source we're using. Okay, we're reading what's actually there. And so I want you to think of first and second Corinthians in this way. Corinthians A, B, C and D. You with me? Okay. And so there, uh, these four letters do not include any of the letters that came from Corinth to Paul, just from Paul to the Corinthian church. So Paul is first visiting Corinth about 50 A.D. He stays with a couple uh, who are tent makers, Aquila and Priscilla, who had recently been forced to leave because Claudius had kicked all the Jews out of Rome. He is joined by Silas and Timothy, and under their ministry, the church grows. Paul is in some danger while he's there because the Lord speaks to him and says, you speak. Don't be afraid. Don't be silent. I've got people in this town. I'm with you. That's from Acts 18. The Jews do mount a united attack on Paul. They literally drag him out of the temple as he's reasoning from Scripture and drag him before the pro-council. And uh, the guy who drug him out is actually literally physically beat down in front of the pro-council trying to get Paul kicked out. He got himself beat up. And so Paul leaves Corinth probably in the spring of 52 A.D., giving him all Almost two years, not quite there. After leaving Corinth, he goes to Ephesus. And so in 1 Corinthians 5, we know that Paul speaks of a previous letter. This is uh, the letter that he wrote from Ephesus to the Corinthians. We don't have that letter. And Paul writes Corinth, rebuking all the various sin issues. And this letter is referred to as Corinthians A. 
You with me? And so Paul is in Ephesus. Uh, we don't have that letter, by the way. So Paul's in Ephesus. Chloe's people come and report all the bad stuff going on. And then a letter comes from the Corinthians church. Uh, Stephanus and his crew probably bring that letter. And they tell everything that's going on. And this thing is loaded with all kinds of specific questions about marriage and divorce and food and, and sacrifice to idols and spiritual gifts and all the stuff we talked about in the first Corinthian study. We don't have that letter. In the meantime, Paul sends Timothy to Corinth to deal with some of the problems there. Then in spring of 55, this is three years after Paul leaves uh, uh, Corinth, he writes the letter we know as First Corinthians concerning all the problems and responding to all those questions that the church had. So that is Corinthians B. That's where we're starting in this conversation. Okay. And so at this point, Paul makes a visit uh, to Macedonia. He comes through, makes a short stop at Corinth. This is his second visit. And it is what in Second Corinthians chapter two, he calls the painful visit. And this is a quick trip to deal with some of the problems that were serious enough to require face-to-face. During this visit, Paul is personally attacked by one of the church members. And this was a difficult visit for both Paul and the church at Corinth. And now we're getting somewhere. This is what Mike spoke on last week. And so Paul leaves there, goes back to Ephesus, and he writes what is called the tearful letter or the severe letter. We don't have that letter. But Paul apparently professes his love to the Corinthians and requires them to discipline this guy who had led this revolt, this coup. And this is what is known as Corinthian C. And so apparently the letter was really effective in producing this repentance from the Corinthians. And Paul plans to come back and visit. And they never happen due to intervening circumstances and danger in Asia. And this is what Dr. Sam preached on two weeks ago. So Paul travels to Troas, doesn't find uh, Titus, but he finally finds Titus and gets encouragement by a good report. But then here's about this. Now there are some people in Corinth calling themselves super apostles, openly challenging Paul's authority. Apparently, these are Jewish Christians from Judea, perhaps seeking to impose authority of the mother church over the smaller Gentile churches. They not only come with a powerful, engaging speaking style, they come with letters of recommendation. They come with credentials. They come with ordination, if you will. And so these superlative apostles that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12 also seem to bring a totally different take on the gospel. And the guys are not like Paul at all. These guys are polished. They're trained. They're slick. They're educated. They're eloquent speakers. Paul's not. These guys are affluent. They're successful. They're good looking. They got connections. Paul doesn't. These guys aren't getting beat up everywhere they go or getting thrown in jail. Paul is. And so compared to these guys, Paul's whole life is a train wreck. And these guys look like rock stars. And so they're saying that surely Paul does not have God's blessing. He's not approved of God. These guys are truly blessed. Just look at their life. And so this is evidence that God is not with Paul. And people are saying, hey, I think I'd rather have the gospel that these new guys are selling. Finally, there are some teachers in Corinth saying some things that people really want to hear. 
and they're lining up to hear it. They're telling me that I can live my best life now and I don't have to suffer or, or, or suffer for anything in the gospel. I get all the perks and I have none of the problems. Sweet! And you and I thought we came up with the prosperity gospel in our day. There's nothing new, folks. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, 3, For a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, they will, to suit their own desires, they will gather around themselves a great number of teachers to say whatever their itching ears want to hear. So you don't like what that guy is saying, you just cancel him out and get a new guy. The Corinthians are lining up to throw money at these guys. So, it's in response to all of this that Paul writes Corinthians D, what we know as 2 Corinthians, from Macedonia about 56 A.D. Okay, that's the context. See, there's nothing to it. Now, I want us to look back at our text, and I want to start out by pointing out that everything we read is a section. And I I, I want you to to think of a a book rack, and there's bookends, and those bookends support whatever's in the middle, right? This is built kind of like that. And so I want to look at this front and back section, which deals specifically with the current situation at Corinth, the current conflict, and these new teachers, and how Paul is exposing their motivations and intentions. Here's that first bookend. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one we're an aroma that brings death, and to another we're an aroma that brings life. And then Paul asks the question, who is equal to the task? Paul, that's a great question. He is saying that only those who are willing to be led as captive slaves to Christ, only those who are willing to be used by God to spread the aroma of Jesus, not those that are pushing their own agenda. They are preaching the truth of the gospel that is an aroma that ends in only two possible outcomes. Life or death? It's the same aroma. It's the same word. It's the same gospel. This is Luke 8. A sower went out to sow his seed. The seed is the word of God. He's saying, who is equal to that task? Only those who are willing to be slaves of Christ and be used of God. Unlike so many people, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. Ouch. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, as those sent from God, as if to say, not like these guys. He keeps going. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to or from you? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You are the fruit of... 
and the evidence of our ministry. You are the fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is not written on tablets of stone. This is written by the hand of God, the Holy Spirit on human hearts. And that speaks a whole lot louder than a piece of paper in a frame hanging on a wall. It's called the word of my testimony. The blood of the Lamb and the word of my testimony are the only two things I have in this world. It is this confidence that we have through Christ before God. Not that we are confident in ourselves for anything. But our confidence comes from God. Paul says these super apostles are all about boasting about themselves and their ministry. What they're doing, their plans. He says, not so with us. We claim to know nothing except Jesus Christ and his him crucified, lest we empty the cross of its power. We are just the captive slaves. We are the ones being used to point Jesus to people, to Jesus, not ourselves. He's made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. The letter kills, the spirit gives life. He says this is not the cold, dead hand of religion coming up out of the grave. This is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now look at this back book in the first part of chapter four. Therefore, since through God's mercy, we have this ministry, we don't lose heart. He gave it to us. The reason we don't lose heart, it's not our ministry in the first place. It's his. We follow him. We do as he says, as he leads. We have no plans of our own. We have relinquished the right to ourselves. We are an aroma that brings life or death. And he says we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. To the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everybody's conscience in the sight of God. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I show myself as a workman approved by God, one who correctly handles the word of God. Second Timothy two fifteen. I don't water this down and make it more palatable to an ear that doesn't really want to hear it to make it culturally relevant. I preach the gospel as it is given by God in the Holy Scripture, and it brings life to one and it brings death. To another, it's not popular, but it's truth and it's life. This is exactly what Jesus was warning us about in Matthew chapter 7. Watch out for false prophets. When I say the word false prophet, what do you think about? Someone who denies Christ, probably. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about someone who professes falsely. If I distort the word of God, if I change it to be something that people want to hear in their flesh, I profess the gospel falsely. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. They look like they belong to Christ, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. He goes on in verse 20, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who.
is in heaven, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And Jesus said, I will look at them plainly and say, depart from me. I never knew you. What is the bottom line here? There's a lot of people out there that look like they belong to Jesus. There's a lot of people using Jesus' name, doing things in Jesus' name, but they don't belong to Jesus. These are Jesus' words, not mine. These are red letters. He says the fruit is the only way that you're going to be able to tell. What I want to tell you, church, is follow the shepherd, not the flock. You keep your eyes on Jesus. If I'm up here and doing anything less than putting your eyes 100% on the person of Jesus Christ, I have no business to be up here. None. And so it's in the middle of this, these two bookends, that Paul shows us the glory of Jesus Christ. From 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 to chapter 4 and verse 6, Paul uses the word glory 14 times. There's one section, four verses he uses the word ten times. Paul is driving home a point, and the point is Jesus. It is absolutely, Kurt, my man. The glory of God seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the glory of the new covenant. And how does Paul do it? He begins with Moses. And this is this is Exodus 33 and 34, just like Jesus did in Luke 24. This is Mount Sinai. This is where God is giving his covenant to Israel on tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. And in the middle of that process, Moses says to God, Lord, I don't want to go if you're not going with me. And so I want you to prove that you're really with me. And so in chapter 33 and verse 18, Moses says to God, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Can you imagine what that was like? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. But the Lord said, there's this place I know near me. And there's this crack, there's this crevice, there's this cleft in this rock. And I'm going to put you in there and I'm going to put my hand over you and I'm going to pass by you. And when I'm past you, I'm going to take my hand loose and you can witness my glory from the backside. Well, God did exactly what he said he would. Moses got exactly what he wanted, but he couldn't even handle seeing God's back because in 34 and verse 8, Moses threw himself to the ground and he worshiped God. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so chapter 34 and verse 29, Moses is coming down from Mount Sinai and he's got these tablets and he's been in the presence of God and his face is glowing And he doesn't know it. And so he's like, hey, guys, I have these to show you. And they're like, ah, get away from us. He's like, no, I really need to show you this. No way. We're not coming. 
So he tells everybody what he needs to tell them. And then he puts a veil back on his face. And but when he goes into the tent of meeting to meet with God, he takes it off. He comes out, tells them what God commanded, and he puts it back on. Paul is bringing this event with Moses to the forefront of this issue because these Corinthian believers are being led astray from the truth of the gospel. And he is saying that this whole thing with Moses has never been about Moses. This has always been about Jesus. Everything is by him. Everything is for him. Everything was pointing and directing to the person of Jesus Christ, beginning with Moses. This is scripture. This is the Pentateuch. This is the prophets. This is the Psalms. Second Corinthians three and verse six. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but the letter, the but of the spirit, the letter kills, the spirit gives life. He's calling this the ministry that brings death. And he is saying that this glory is being brought to an end. He said, will not the ministry of the spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more is this ministry that is going to bring righteousness? He is saying that what was glorious then is not even comparable to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is Pentecost. This is the day that that happened. We have Christ living in us. His Spirit living in us. This is John 14, 15, 16. He's going to teach you all things. He is going to be the one that is the teacher. He's going to take from what is mine and make it known to you. The Holy Spirit's entire ministry is to show you the glory of Christ. Not anything less. If what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory that lasts? The old covenant was written on tablets of stone. It's... Paul calls it the ministry of death. It was temporary. It was merely a shadow of the glory to come. The new covenant is written in us, in the fabric of our lives, in our very DNA on human hearts. And it is the ministry that brings life out of death. It is permanent. It is not passing away. Listen to me. The old covenant stood outside us and demanded do The new covenant lives inside us and proclaims, done! It is finished! Jesus lives inside us. We don't live from the outside in. We live from the inside out. We are in Christ. We are a new creation. We were dead in our sins and now we are alive in Christ. Such is the confidence, verse 4, that we have in Christ before God. We have confidence in God because of the completed work of Jesus Christ. If somebody come up and ask you, why do you have this hope? Why do you have this confidence before God? And we answer that with anything that begins with I me or my we have already missed the point it's because he it's because of him it is his righteousness his sacrifice his his perfect sacrifice his godliness his life is now my life i've been crucified with christ i don't live anymore therefore since we have this hope we are very 
bold were not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing what's passing away. But Moses and the Israelites put that veil on out of fear, fear of death. But we're not like Moses. Why? Because we have no fear of death because Jesus took that death penalty on himself and nailed it to the cross. I can now gaze openly into the face of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I can pursue him with boldness. This is an active pursuit. I am pursuing Christ. I want to know him. Everything else is garbage. I throw off everything that hinders I want to know Christ with no fear. But what about this veil? Second Corinthians chapter three and verse 14, their minds were made dull for to this day. The same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. The God of this age has blinded unbelievers, verse 4, chapter 4, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The veil hides the glory of God, who is Jesus, the image of the invisible God. The word became flesh and we have beheld his glory. Verse 16, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Spirit of the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We love that verse. For unbelievers, this truth remains today. That veil can only be taken away by Jesus, and only then will there be freedom. And us believers are all like, freedom! But one thing I know in my own life, there's probably nothing more dangerous in my own hands than my own freedom. Because I think that I have the freedom to put that veil back on out of fear or out of control anytime I want. You know, Jesus, I just don't think I feel like being transformed today. And Jesus says, no, you have to remove that veil every single day. This is what Jesus calls denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him. He says, I need for you to abide in me and I will abide in you. You cannot do that with a veil on your face. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And the Holy Spirit is screaming inside us, get up and open that door. Open that door and look him face to face. Abide in him, live in him and be transformed into his likeness. And this is the pinnacle of everything we've been talking about. Verse 18, for we all who with unveiled faces contemplate, we we we. We gaze into it. We, we long to see him face to face are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. The ESV says from one degree of glory to another. This is what David was talking about in class this morning. This is never ending. You are being transformed day by day. Every day you are a new creation in Christ. And this is being done 
to you. You are being transformed into his image. It's not something you and I are doing. You cannot transform yourself. All you can do is put yourself in a position to be transformed by Christ. Abiding in Him, keeping that door open, and gazing into the face of His glory. It's something that is being done to you. This is not about doing, it's about being. You're being transformed into His likeness. Here's the bottom line. What, whatever we worship, we become exactly like that thing. And if I gaze into the face of the world day in and day out, I am going to look Exactly like the world, and I'm going to be the aroma of the world. But if I am being transformed daily, coming face to face with Jesus, I will be changed. You cannot be in the presence of Jesus Christ and not be transformed. Do you understand that? Moses had no option. He came out, he didn't even know he was glowing. People are going to see Jesus in you. It's what it means to be written on your heart by the hand of the Holy Spirit that people read you. You're a witness. People are squeezing you in this world because they want to see what comes out. And it better be Jesus. Amen? John chapter 1, verse 3. This is what John is saying. Right now we're children of God. What we're going to be, I don't know. But when we see Jesus, you know what we're going to find out? Man, I look just like him. I didn't even know I was being transformed. We are being transformed into his image. We will see him face to face. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the mystery that has been hidden for generations that is now disclosed to the Lord's people. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, the Spirit and the Bride say come. If you have a need this morning, come.